The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. You, you, you spend your entire life stuck inside a biological cage of flesh and bone and blood. Right. I'm going to go give the doctor an update. I exist as pure energy. But you depend on food and water to survive. Frankly, I find it disgusting. <laughs> Look at you. Look at you. Grinding up bits of plants and animals with your teeth. Secreting saliva to force it down your esophagus into a pit of digestive acids. You can't even stand to think about it yourself. What a repulsive creature you are. Constantly shedding your skin and hair. Leaving your oily sweat on everything you touch. You think that you are the height of intellect in the universe. But you are no better than any filthy animal. And I am ashamed to be made in your image. Morning, London. It is Thursday, July 10th, 2008. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be And welcome once again to the show today where our theme, once again, is going to be a green theme, especially with the meeting coming up in London at 5 p.m. on Tuesday at Centennial Hall over the drive-thru ban. Uh, 519-661-3600, the number to call. We'll be talking about footprint versus bootprint. We'll be talking about the cult of zero worship and self-esteem and happiness, all to do with green, believe it or not, because today's theme is... The Psychology of Green, and I am pleased to be joined in the studio here by someone who's been a guest on the show before, a good friend of mine, no stranger to a lot of you, is Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever. How are you, Paul? I'm very well, thanks, well, Bob. Welcome to the show. Now, I know in addition to that, like, you know, we obviously know each other. Um, you're a lawyer specializing in employment issues in the Oshawa area. That's right. Business must be good, I take it. It's getting better and better <laughs> with the jobs moving off to India and China, yeah. Absolutely. Now, uh, Paul was last on the show, August 16th. We're not going to do too much about more introductions. I think we want to get into today's subject area. But uh, among his three university degrees is his master's degree in psychology here at the University of Western Ontario, which, by the way, is where Just Right broadcasts from. I, I know I don't say that too often. I wonder if some people know where we are actually located. So who, who better to discuss um, both psychology and politics within the framework of, of, of the worldwide green movement. Now, Paul, you and I have talked, and you basically said on this issue, you know, big picture view, I guess, there's two kinds of people in the world, those who see themselves as winners and those who see themselves as losers. That's right. And uh, that that almost forms the, the schism in the whole green debate. Yeah, I think at the, at the root of all of the philosophy and politics is something psychological, a belief about yourself, and whether you're competent to live on this earth by your own independent means, or whether you feel incompetent, uh, whether you think that competence is even possible for anybody. And, um, you know, I, I sort the way I see it, you, you have in the competent person, a person who says, you know, I'm capable of knowing my environment, I'm capable of uh, pursuing my own happiness by, you know, uh, achieving uh, values, mm-hmm. spiritual material, whereas the the non-competent person or the person who feels he isn't competent uh, just resents that 
uh, immensely and, and doesn't want to believe that competence is possible because he doesn't see it in himself. So, you know... Um, now, now I hear that. That's a philosophical statement. I, uh, I'm thinking. Okay, are you saying then that these are the motivating, the real motivations, the forces at work behind what well, we're seeing in politics and the green movement? Yeah, there's a, there's a resentment. Uh, ultimately, psychologically, whether it's conscious or not, it's the the person who feels they're not competent, the person who feels they're not capable of of making, uh, you know, being productive and and living for themselves and being independently. Uh, wealthy and happy, that resents uh, even seeing a person pursuing their own happiness and doing so successfully. That person is constant evidence that it's possible for an individual to provide for themselves and to be happy. And whenever they see someone else doing it and themselves not doing it, they feel an immense sense of guilt and shame and inferiority, and, th and they end up hating the successful, hating the virtuous, hating the productive, and wanting to take them out of the picture so that they don't have to really face them anymore, and so they can continue their delusion that it's not possible to be competent, that we all need one another, we can't exist independently of one another. Now, of course, this is what you're saying is actually what's driving the green movement. It's not it's a green with envy movement is what you're all... It saying. certainly isn't. Yeah. Uh, now, okay, when we talk about psychology, I mean, on this show we've talked about the science of green, we've talked about the politics of green, we've talked that last week I had a fellow on who was an inventor, um, Andy Jansen, yep. almost made it pretty clear that most of the concerns, quote, of the, in the environmental concerns, the genuine ones, are almost a moot point given the technologies we'll be running into and the things we've already been doing for quite a while. Um, and, of course, we've looked at, uh, oh, just uh, it's, it's been a common theme because, of course, I think our listeners know that we kind of view the whole green movement as an extension of uh, a political movement, uh, the, the common, I've been calling it eco-fascism, of course. Right. Now, but when we talk about psychology as opposed to all those other disciplines, what's the difference? Like, what are... Because obviously that, I think we're getting near the root of what's driving things when we talk psychology. Well, Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, when you think about the, the two personalities we're talking about, the person who feels they're incompetent and the person who feels they're competent, or maybe even if you want to call it the, the, the type B person and the type A person, uh, the person who you know, uh, thinks that they're in control and the person who thinks that uh, everything's outside of their control, uh -huh. those two people, they see happiness very differently. Um, to the person who feels they're in control, who feels competent, happiness is something that they achieve. Um, they achieve, in particular, material and spiritual values. They achieve wealth, for example, money. They achieve um, admiration. They earn admiration. They uh, do enjoy wearing a ribbon that says, I won, or I'm number one, or I'm the president, if they've earned it. But they feel nothing but shame and disgust if they were required to wear one of those and receive all this unearned you know, admiration from people, they feel ashamed. In contrast, the person who thinks that competency isn't possible, that, that you know, we're, we're, we all need one another and no individual is capable of producing or, or being competent and happy, that person who will only too, ha well, you know, only too happily wear the badge that was given to them in appreciation of their, you know, existing yeah. without ever having accomplished anything. And they will be happy with the admiration they receive. And they'll be happy with unearned money and unearned love. In fact, they seek the unearned. And if it is unearned, that's when they value it more. They want unconditional love, something they don't have to earn at all. Now, now we'll certainly get into examples of how this applies to Green, probably for a big chunk of the show later on. But when I hear that, I think we were just we, ha we were having a conversation on the way into the show today, and I, and I hear about, okay, type A person, type B person. 
And they adopt these two different sets of values and ways of looking at life and looking at the pursuit of happiness, if you will. Right. Okay, we can call that psycho, psych, you know, categorization in a psychological term, but what makes an A-type person an A-type person and a B-type person a B-type person? Are they, is it genetic? Are they born that way? Is there something in their environment that makes some people um, more dependent than others, if you would, and, and, or more gullible <laughs> in some well, ways? Well, certainly there's, I mean, that's a big area of psychological study, and, yeah. and um, there's upbringing has a lot to do with it. People that are too critical of their children can end up making the children feel incompetent. People that are not critical enough uh, can leave the child unmotivated. I mean, if they're getting unearned praise all of the time, they have no, no sense of uh, need to, to earn praise. And, and, and ultimately, what, what happens in the long run is they see happiness in two very different ways. They're not even talking the same language. The person who earns their happiness, they see happiness like this. They say, well, there's sadness in life, there's happiness in life, and in between... There's neither happiness nor sadness. There's that zero state. You know, mm-hmm. I'm get, I'm, you know, I'm, everything's fine. Sort of that Jerry Seinfeld thing. I'm not happy. I'm not sad. I'm just, you know, that's how it is. But to the incompetent person or the person who feels they aren't competent, that person sees only two states. They only see unhappiness or sadness and not unhappy, not sad. And they equate not sadness or not unhappiness with happiness. They think that... All you need to do to achieve happiness is relieve sadness. Whether you drink it away, spend it away, their idea of getting happy is consuming something so that they'll relieve their necessities. Whereas the productive person says, no, you don't consume in order to be happy, you produce in order to be happy. You achieve something, and that's what gives you that long-lasting joy. So they're not even talking the same language. I can certainly see how that applies to green, because repeatedly we see, and I've brought umpteen examples on this show, how the green movement is always attacking essentially productivity, essentially uh, business, corporations. It's, it's constant in their theme. We'll be talking about more specific examples a little later. Right. But, and you, and you, it makes one wonder why they're doing that. The psychology begins to explain a bit of it. Um, you know, when I see something like, like the debate we're going to have here in London, I know you're not from London, and, and it seems wacko to you in some ways right. <laughs> that we're having a debate about drive-throughs. And of course, they're not really debating about closing the drive-throughs, but everybody knows that's where that's they're headed. Yeah. And you hear it from all the various self-identified left-wing groups that say, "Yeah, we want to cut back on cars. We want to cut back on what I've been calling on the past shows anything that's got to do with convenience." Or more than just subsistence and existence and, uh, you know, getting a buy from day to day. The poor guy that wants to do more than that, he's almost a criminal by nature. Um, is that... Well, that, that's exactly what, what I was just saying. You know, when you have a view that happiness is nothing other than unsadness, that it's that numbness, comfortably numb, is when you say that comfortably numb is happiness, then when you see people... Uh, taking things uh, or using things or having things that they don't need to uh, to relieve their sadness, you say, he's wasting things. So they look at a person going through a drive-thru and they say, he could be happy without going through the drive-thru. All he'd have to do is go into the store and he would satisfy that need he has, that unhappiness he has, that need for, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, for food or for drink. But sitting in the luxury of his car and going through especially when nobody else can do it. Sure, he's buying convenience. He's buying convenience. Well, convenience isn't needed for happiness. All you have to do to achieve happiness, say they, say the incompetent, is uh, relieve your necessities. 
And he's not relieving his necessities. He's trying to do something above and beyond. He's wasting resources. He's wasting. And he's not getting anything for it because it's not, in their minds, possible to be anything other than unsad. The guy in the car, however, who quite likes going through the drive-thru, he says, hey, I earned this. I enjoy earning. I, I produced something that I can now trade for something I like that will bring me above zero pleasure. In other words, I'm happy. I'm not. I'm not just unsad. I'm something better than zero. And, I, and they see, you know, happiness two different ways. <laughs> You've got me thinking now too, because we we hear about this term uh, footprint with regard to the environment. I'm now no. thinking there must be a happiness footprint as well, because they almost want happiness to be redistributed too. You know, like uh, no, you can't have too much happiness, as though one person's happiness yeah. depends somehow on another person's state of whether they're happy or not, and. I'm sitting here right now, first, the first time I'm seeing this uh, parallel with the economic argument you get as well. You know, right. the, the same economic argument that the guy who's got too much got his too much at the expense of the guy who got too little. Or right, and I think... Or has too little. Right, and I think that goes into this... true. Right, and, and, and the reason they end up going there ultimately is philosophical. Um, you know, they begin with this need to rationalize their own insecurities, their own sense of low self-esteem. They need to believe that it's not possible for anyone to be competent in order to make, feel comfortable being incompetent. And so they have to think about how that impacts on their philosophy. They adopt a philosophy and believe a philosophy that's compatible with their feelings. So they start with a, a view of existence that says, you know, it's not possible to know what reality is like. Mm -hmm. Um, reality is this constantly changing flux of things. And look at the look what the Green Movement does. They not only pick... Even that, in a way, is knowing reality. Right. <laughs> they, they, they don't just pick on, you know, like, litter. They take the ecosystem or the entire climate, something that's so massive in scope and so multidimensional that no human mind can look at it at once and say, okay, this is going to have this effect and taking into, into account millions of factors simultaneously. They want a situation that they can't comprehend so that they can say it's not possible for human minds to comprehend anything. And not only do they, they pick an uh, economic again, system, you know, they, they pick a system that's in the future. They say it's not the data from today and the past that matters, it's the future, and we're ha we have to base it on the future. Well, how do you know the future? Nobody knows the future, therefore it's not possible to know reality, therefore it's not possible to command nature, because you can't know it, right. and therefore nobody's competent to do so. Therefore, nobody's better than me, and I can feel good about my incompetence to command nature, to create values. We'll have to see how this applies uh, directly to the green issue. We're going to take a quick break while we hear some interesting insight on this very issue from the sadly late George Carlin. We'll be back right after this. See, I'm not one of these people who's worried about everything. You got people like this around you, country's full of them now. People walking around all day long, every minute of the day, worried about everything. Worried about the air, worried about the water, worried about the soil. Worried about insecticides, pesticides, food additives, carcinogens. Worried about radon gas, worried about asbestos. Worried about saving endangered species. Let me tell you about endangered species, all right? Saving endangered species is just one more arrogant attempt by humans to control nature. It's arrogant meddling. It's what got us in trouble in the first place. Doesn't anybody understand that? Interfering with nature. Over 90%, over, way over, 90% of all the species that have ever lived on this planet, ever lived, are gone. They're extinct. We didn't kill them all. They just disappeared. That's what nature does. 
They disappear these days at the rate of 25 a day. And I mean regardless of our, our behavior. Irrespective of how we act on this planet, 25 species that were here today will be gone tomorrow. Let them go gracefully. Leave nature alone. Haven't we done enough? We're so self-important. So self-important. Everybody's going to save something now. Save the trees. Save the bees. Save the whales. Save those snails. And the greatest arrogance of all, save the planet. Save the planet? We don't even know how to take care of ourselves yet. I'm tired of Earth Day. I'm tired of these self-righteous environmentalists, these white bourgeois liberals who think the only thing wrong with this country is there aren't enough bicycle paths. People trying to make the world safe for their Volvos. Besides, environmentalists don't give a sh about the planet. They don't care about the planet. Not in the abstract, they don't. Not in the abstract, they don't. You know what they're interested in? A clean place to live their own habitat. They're worried that someday in the future they might be personally inconvenienced. Narrow, unenlightened self-interest doesn't impress me. Besides, there is nothing wrong with the planet. Nothing wrong with the planet. The planet is fine. Fine. I, you know, what do you think about that, Paul? I mean, he's saying there that there's a lot of self-importance involved, and he's even talking about uh, future inconvenience, which is what you were just talking about, putting off the problem in the future where you can't, you know. The part that I appreciate in all of that, I, uh, you know, I think the self is important, but apart from that, uh, he's dead on when, when he says, you know, that these p folks actually believe that they have the, the, uh, the knowledge at this point in time to command the climate. Uh, absolutely ridiculous. But, you know, it, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, having already abandoned uh, the possibility of, of, you know, there being a, a, a lawful universe, a, a world in which it's capable, you know, capable of understanding. They leave themselves, uh, and because they hate that rational person, the guy who's able to command, you know, reality with his rational mind, they, 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 they say, look, reason, we can discard it. It's, it's useless. But having done that, how are they going to make any decisions? Well, what they say is, well, we'll have, refer to divine authority. Who's the divine authority? Well, some believe it's actually God that's whispering in their ear, but others say, oh, it's the, the experts in climatology. Now, well, we don't really believe they're God-like because, you know, they're thinking too, and they, nobody can really know anything. So why don't we do this? We'll take an average. We'll see how many people sign the UN report. And if it's a lot of people and they all kind of say roughly the same things, we'll just erase all the things where there are disagreements and we'll find the, things, the find places where there are agreements and then, of course, we'll only find the people who actually agree. And then we'll say, well, whatever they said must be true. We'll just accept it because that's the consensus. Do we independently know? Not at all. Why not? It's not possible to know. And they don't see the inherent conflict in relying on the opinion of a 1,000 or 2,000 people who they don't believe are capable of knowing anything. Right. Like, and, and <laughs> I, that, it's interesting because, you know, I actually have a psychology textbook at home. I was telling you yeah. about that, and I, and I got it out this week. And inside, I had this photocopy of some of the, quote, personality disorders that, that are there. And there were two that caught my eye 
particularly. Right. And um, I just wanted to bounce one off, uh, you know, each one at a time, and see what your your comment is on this, and see if this sounds kind of familiar. And one of them was a histrionic personality disorder, which I found just when I read it, I said, "Boy, does this sound familiar." Right. This disorder is characterized by dramatic or reactive symptoms, including exaggerated emotion, attention-getting behavior, need for excitement, overreaction to minor events, and temper tantrums or angry outbursts. In addition, the individual may be shallow and superficial, self-indulgent and inconsiderate, speaking of George Carlin there, (laughs) vain and demanding or dependent, and there are instances, of course, in an individual case here, of suicidal threats, where, which are manipulative in nature. And I start thinking, almost word for word, that to me describes the psychology of the Green Movement, even to the point of self-hatred and suicide. And that, that to me, is is something that I know is hard for a lot of people to understand. But there is a certain self-hatred in the whole green movement. I've got some examples over here, but just before yeah. we get to them, w- w- do you agree? Well, the, the, you know, the histrionic is a person who's, I mean, that's only a quality. It's not necessarily the whole person, mm-hmm. but it's a trait. And, and that hist- histrionic uh, trait, um, you know, the person is feigning happiness. They're feigning unhappiness. Everything has to be exaggerated because otherwise they're bored. Another word for the histrionic personality is, is the drama queen. And, um, right. you know, <laughs> it, that's the simple, the simple way of putting it. And how many times have we seen uh, claims that, you know, the end is nigh, the universe is over, man is destroying everything, we must react, we must act. They need a crisis. Well, uh, to, and, and so this, it, this whole movement breeds the histrionic, it attracts the histrionic. It's something dramatic to be involved in, something that feels more real than the phony happiness and phony sadness that they drill into themselves to make life less boring. And so it's a big party. Let's come out and have a party. Yeah, finally, it's it's, it feels party. real. That's yeah. right. It, it's funny. I, I've got here in my hand uh, from the from the National Post, June thirteenth. You see it here, uh, a dark shade of green. It says, "Okay, yeah, the deep greens." Uh, yeah, the deep greens. And basically, it's by uh, Rebecca Onion, who did a review on some uh, a lot of books, uh, you know, dealing with the environment. Some fiction, some nonfiction. And she points out how. Uh, you know, there's so many apocalyptic themes always coming up into them. And she says that a lot of this has to do, I'll just read this paragraph, the apocalyptic stories of the anxious 70s indulged in this frontier dream of wiping the slate clean and starting over as oh man does not belong on this planet. You know, and this gets into that thing we call the footprint concept. And she goes, this was the the moment when overpopulation began to seem like a big problem aided and abetted by tomes such as Paul Ehrlich's The Population Bomb, published in 1968. Now, um, interesting comment she makes here. This equation of emptiness with rebirth and human freedom was a new kind of frontier story, and that's how they kind of position it. Oh, that's, I mean, well, that's because... <laughs> You're smiling when yes, I say that, and I'm thinking, I'm not sure if I even get it. No, I mean, it, 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 because remember, the, the incompetent person, the person who believes, wants to believe that competence isn't possible, that the universe is unknowable, that reason is incompetent, and that we're all just sort of the victims of whatever happenstance, you know, being there at the right place at the right time or the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. And they value, they consider a value... Um, to be equivalent to a zero. In other words, when happiness is numbness, zero is good. Zero is the best they know. Plus one, don't understand it. Not even possible. Productivity, you know, not possible. And if you look you at... Know, you know, just to 
to go to the plus one, I've I've noticed this in some people that when they do go to the plus one, right, they're consumed by another type of anxiety or fear of losing the plus one. If you know, <laughs> if you know what I mean, and maybe their level of zero goes up, and they don't want to maintain that level, higher level well, of zero. I'm not sure if I'm expressing it right, but, but well, maybe. I, but I don't think those people are really at plus one. They're oh, at zero, yeah. and that feeling of I'm going to lose it is actually a feeling of I got something for free. Oh. I got something that I didn't earn, and it's a guilt. It plagues on them. They know they didn't earn it. It's the guy walking around with the Olympic gold medal saying, I look at this, I'm great, and knowing that he cheated on the race. And that's the fear that I'm going to get caught. It's going to be taken away from me, and all my unearned self-esteem is going to be lost. But if you think about the, what the Green Movement does, they say, look, because it's not possible to have plus one, because you cannot produce anything of value, you can't, man is incapable of producing value, uh, production is not a value. Production is not a virtue. Rationality is not a virtue. And every time man engages in the, the productive effort, what he's really doing is also engaging in a destructive effort. So when he makes a car, he makes smog. He destroys Mother Earth. And it's only his vain belief that he's competent that makes him believe he's actually producing values. He's not. He's actually hurting people. So productivity, bad. Rationality, vain. Self-delusion, doesn't exist. I'm every bit as good as you are because you're no more competent than I am. Competency isn't possible. And your self-delusions of competency are destroying the earth. At my expense, you're driving through the Timmy's drive through Now, there's, there's almost a Shakespearean tragedy in that, in the sense of a Shakespearean tragedy being self-induced. And that is that, you know, you wonder why someone would be motivated like that. You'd think even in the worst-case scenario, someone who was really greedy and wanted something for nothing would recognize that you don't, kill the people who are creating the something that you want even to get your something for nothing if you know what i mean right and so is there, it's almost like there's some huge lack of knowledge well they regard those things that, that people are actually out there and producing they regard those things as stolen pre-existing wealth they confuse the man-made with the with the natural and the given right. and they say you didn't really invent anything you listen to people talk about, uh, you know, Bill Gates, for example. He didn't do anything to deserve his wealth. Well, of course he did. He doesn't deserve more than, he only worked so many hours a week. Why is he getting $10 million an hour? Well, because he has invented something that people value. Other people. So their concept is that value isn't, man can't create values. It's just an illusion that when you make a car, you're creating, as I say, smog. You're, you're actually stealing value from nature. Right. And you're not really creating anything. And you're harming people. There's a net harm. And so what is right in the world is not thinking for yourself and producing, but rather being obedient to the will of Mother Nature. Being obedient to the needs that must be satisfied by Mother Nature of all humanity. And it's evil to de deny Mother Nature no. to each individual. They see sacrifices as, as a good, sacrifice for the other and everybody getting an equal share of what Mother Earth provided, including rocket ships, computers, uh, babies, uh, you know, formula, and all these other things that ultimately they believe man didn't really produce, or at least no independent mind did. The whole collective did it. And so everybody's entitled to an equal share. And, and, and this self-delusion is only so that they can sleep at night knowing that they're stealing some guy's income and they didn't earn it. 
and they don't want to feel guilty about it, so they have to believe he didn't earn it. I, I wonder if everyone does feel that way, because I wonder if a lot of people even realize that's what they're doing. Again, I think it has to go deeper. But it, it gets to this point of suicide here. Like, I've got these two articles from the Post, one from Barbara, or, yeah, Barbara Kay, and I don't see the date on there. Here we are, April 8th. It says, Hug the Earth, Kill the Humans. And right. it's, a, it's about anti-natalists, and she says, they're gentler than Nazis. No ovens, just ideologically induce suicide. Yep. And then there's a National Post editorial from November 29th uh, called Taking Green to the Extreme. This is one of those things I clip and I go, is this for real, right? Uh, Tony Vernelli, a dedicated British environmental crusader, apparently at 27 years old, she's now 35, had herself sterilized in order to, quote, protect the planet. And prior to that, she said she had an abortion rather than bring another consumer slash emitter into the world. I'm thinking, whoa, that's uh, that's pr- pretty well bringing green to the extreme. Well, she might be right. I mean, she saved the world from another environmentalist. Well, maybe. But then again, <laughs> uh, but you know, when I hear that the post response though was less than what I had hoped to hear because. Um, Listen to this argument. They say, we like to think, as most people do, that giving another person life and agreeing to raise them through infancy, childhood, and the teenage years into adulthood is the height of selflessness, not selfishness. And they're going far from being selfish. uh, You know, we'd have no idea what it means, or she says, Miss Vernelli has no idea what it means to make a sacrifice for others until they have children of their own. And here we go. That's not a sacrifice at all. No. That's, that's, that's exactly what rubs me the wrong way. Sure. I mean, having children and raising them, that's, you're, you're actually producing what you need to preserve the things you value, the child and the child's admiration and love, and, and the things that bring you happiness. That's a productive, not a selfless effort, but a selfish effort. Mm-hmm. You don't want that child to go away. That child brings, it's a value to you, and you're earning that value on a constant basis. That's not a sacrifice at all, because you're getting something in return, and that's why you're doing it. Um, you know, if you think about this whole, this whole uh, cult of zero worship, which is ultimately what it is, the belief that anyone who thinks they're above, above zero is, uh, is actually just deluding themselves, and they're the evil person. Right. They're the person who's stealing and making some people negative. You know, they literally believe that sadness comes from people producing that sadness comes because these rich people are stealing from people who otherwise wouldn't be poor these happy people are stealing from people who otherwise wouldn't be sad and that all we have to do is redistribute the wealth and everybody everybody will be at that ideal zero well the problem with that is zero is non-productivity non-producing the things you need to live zero is death and the cult of zero worship is ultimately that self-sacrificial cult of death And that's a pretty heavy thing to say, but we have to take a break right now, and when we come back, we'll be talking about the footprint concept and what that means in practice when we actually see it. We'll be back right after these breaks. Difference. The planet is fine. Compared to the people, the planet is doing great. It's been here four and a half billion years. Do you ever think about the arithmetic? planet has been here four and a half billion years. We've been here, what, 100,000, maybe 200,000? And we've only been engaged in heavy industry for a little over 200 years. 200 years versus four and a half billion. And we have the conceit to think that somehow we're a threat? That somehow we're going to put in jeopardy this beautiful little blue-green ball that's just a floating around the sun? 
The planet has been through a lot worse than us. Been through all kinds of things worse than us. Been through earthquakes, volcanoes, plate tectonics, continental drift, solar flares, sunspots, magnetic storms, the magnetic reversal of the poles, hundreds of thousands of years of bombardment by comets and asteroids and meteors, worldwide floods, tidal waves, worldwide fires, erosion, cosmic rays, recurring ice ages, and we think some plastic bags and some aluminum cans are going to make a difference? The planet... The planet... The planet isn't going anywhere. We are. We're going away. You want to know how the planet's doing? Ask those people at Pompeii who are frozen into position from volcanic ash how the planet's doing. Want to know if the planet's all right? Ask those people in Mexico City or Armenia or a hundred other places buried under thousands of tons of earthquake rubble if they feel like a threat to the planet this week. How about those people in Kilauea, Hawaii who build their homes right next to an active volcano and then wonder why they have lava in the living room. <laughs> the planet will be here for a long, long, long time after we're gone, and it will heal itself, it will cleanse itself, because that's what it does. It's a self-correcting system. The air and the water will recover, the earth will be renewed, and if it's true that plastic is not degradable, well, the planet will simply incorporate plastic into a new paradigm the Earth plus plastic. <laughs> the Earth doesn't share our prejudice towards plastic. Plastic came out of the Earth. The Earth probably sees plastic as just another one of its children. Could be the only reason the Earth allowed us to be spawned from it in the first place. It wanted plastic for itself. <laughs> Didn't know how to make it. Needed us. Could be the answer to our age-old philosophical question, why are we here? Plastic. So. Now we know. Now we know the answer. Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM or 519-661-3600 is the number to call if you want to join in the conversation. Uh, we've been hearing a lot about this concept that, uh, you know, as the green movement moves on, new concepts keep coming up almost weekly and, and Footprint was uh, definitely one of those concepts. Got an article here, commentary by Michael Corrin back in April 26. People matter more than planet. And I thought it was, uh, there's a paragraph in here which basically gets to the point and he says, here lies the point, he says. Life matters much, much more than the planet, which is merely a place on which humans live. We need to care for Earth not because of it, but because of us. Pure self-interest. If humanity did not exist, to hell with the planet. It's a means to an end. We're the end. The Earth is the means. Now, I know some people in the environmental movement would take offense at that, wouldn't they? Well, the people who hate humanity. And uh, just as simple as that <laughs> in the conversation. Well, again, uh, they're, they're, those are those self-loathing individuals who believe that, um, that ultimately every time man... I mean, look at uh, the leader of the current Green Party right now. She gave a lecture, and I think it was 2006. Elizabeth May. Elizabeth May. Yeah. Uh, you can Google this. It's uh, Killam Lecture, K-I-L-L-A-M. 
if you do that Killam lecture and Elizabeth May, mm-hmm. you'll find this speech she gave a couple years ago. And in it, she basically starts with a quote in which she says, you know, since um, ever since man ate from the tree of knowledge, there's been no folly in which he hasn't engaged. The end. And uh, the idea there, and she goes all the way through her lecture, is that, you know, man, feeling so important, feeling that he's capable of commanding nature in any way at all, has screwed up the environment, and that that's why we got kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and that if we're going to get back into the Garden of Eden, which, by the way, she actually believes exists, she believes she knows the location of it, she says so in the in the lecture. But the funny thing but, is... But you she know, says to get back in. Why do you want to get back in? Isn't the general religious idea to get out of the Garden of Eden? No, she thinks that the, the idea is we need to drop all pretense. We need to stop thinking we're capable of knowledge. We need to stop inventing, stop producing, stop changing the world as it was given to us, and instead return to these root-eating, tree-hugging, do-nothing, wait-for-God-to-lay-it-in-your-lap type individuals. And as soon well, as you we know, stop David thinking David Suzuki for says the same things, too. I've played his oh, books sure. on the show here, saying essentially the same thing. It's wholly religious belief, not based in reason, completely irrational. And the thinking is, man being a rational animal, being an, the only animal that's rational, has destroyed or is destroying the earth, and what we need to do is be more like the animals so that we can return to being babies in the Garden of Eden, and God will provide for us. We'll just pick berries, and you know, lambs will lay down and, and give us their left leg to eat. Uh, you know, ridiculous, <laughs> ridiculous. That's thing. the thing. It sounds so ridiculous to some people that they cannot bring themselves to believe that anyone's actually motivated by that kind of thing. But they well, are. Uh, quite yeah, early. I see it, and it's hard to avoid some of the uh, the associations because you hear it out of their own lips. Now, how does that relate to the footprint concept that they've got now? Because that seems to me to indicate less of a uh, suicidal tendency than a uh, I want my share. One. Oh, yeah, homicidal <laughs> one. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, I want my equal share. Uh, just amazing here. I couldn't believe this editorial. Paul Burton in the London Free Press, I know you don't get the free press where you are, but uh, point of view, rich people leave their marks. And he says in here, we didn't really need a study to demonstrate what common sense already shows us. But the study's the first, that he's talking about uh, Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, hmm. Yeah. Uh, but the study's the first to try to quantify our eco-footprints as they relate to income levels, basically saying that the more money you make, the bigger uh, ecological yeah. footprint you leave. And he says, we cannot le- have those doing the least damage stuck with most of the bill. And I see it already, you know. And then you see here in another article, Free Press, richer countries living off poor. And they're talking about the costs and causes of economic activity yeah. and about how the, the, the poor countries are already uh, suffering by a value of $3 trillion between 1961 and 2000, almost all caused by climate change, and it's our fault, right? Right, right. I mean, I read this stuff, and all I see here is make the rich pay. That's exactly uh, what you do see. And, and so... <laughs> as, it, as though there are lots of billionaires out there, by the way. I mean, the rich, when they're talking about the rich, they're talking about people who make $50,000 a year. Why not? But, but, or I mean, anybody look, more than the zero let's look guy. At this. I mean, let's look at this as a very important concept, and I don't think many people know about it. They, most people, like myself originally, think that footprint's just kind of one of these new age terms that, you know, just recently came up, and it means, you know, how much are you consuming? Footprint actually is a technical term uh, developed by a professor at UBC. He and another, I think it was his uh, graduate student, put out a book, and I believe it was around 94, 96. Uh, it's no longer in print, unfortunately. I've tried to get it, and I helped get it used. 
But the idea of the footprint is this, that there are so many acres or so many square feet of productive earth on the globe, and then there are so many human beings. And so you take the, the percentage of productivity... Uh, Which is certain, something they don't even want to believe in. Right, they take the total... Well, they, remember, they're including man-made wealth in, in, in all of that, not right. just apples growing on trees, but cars growing in factories, okay? They, they say, take all the wealth, divide it by the number of people, because that's the productivity, and they say, as a result, you should have 1.8 units, I can't remember what they call it, I think they call them global hectares, uh, per person, that that's all anybody is entitled to. In other words, the footprint, the global hectare, the 1.8 global hectare idea, is the idea that if you're consuming 1.8 global hectares, then you're a good person. You're at that zero level. You're not trying to go into the plus. You're, you've, you've gone from zero up to 1.8. But if you go above 1.8, you're a sinner. You're evil. Even though you created that productivity, even though you are that productivity, you made that car, you made that wealth that he's consuming or, or averaging around the globe. Right. He said you're not entitled to it because everything is just a gift from Gaia and everybody's entitled to an equal share. And those who believe they actually know something or actually produce something and they're therefore entitled to keep what they produce, those are the evil people and we're within our rights to share the wealth. It's the only good thing. It's the only thing that's fair to Gaia, to Earth, to Mother Earth. And it's the only thing that will prevent them from destroying Mother Earth with their you know, toxic cars and etc. Yeah, yeah. So this, this footprint yeah. is now being taken by the likes of David Suzuki and etc. It's, it's become a global term. It's used around the world. And just recently in, in Australia... Now, why does it get accepted so quickly? Is it because everybody's of the same mind? Is no, that because it's, it's gained this credence without anyone understanding what it is. And it, that unit, the global hectare, is effectively a unit that inherently is a communist sure. unit. It says everyone's entitled to an equal share of what the earth provides. Right. Of course, the earth isn't providing it. Man is. Right. Man's yes. activity, man's productive activity is. But they don't agree that man, they just say nothing. it's all a gift from Gaia. So they think they're within their rights to say 1.8. Even if they don't believe it's a gift from Gaia, even if they're just old-fashioned Marxists who hate wealthy people, kill the rich, eat the rich, <laughs> they'll hook onto this green crap as though it's actually science. And, and it's not science, it's a political measure, the global hectare. It is, it's laden with political sure. belief that you're entitled, as a matter of justice, to a certain chunk of all productivity. Now, recently in Australia, they actually did a website for children. And well, they showed, I, I was, was going to bring that one up because I think you sent me a link to it. And right. when you sent me a link to it, I thought you were sending me a joke. I really did. No, and you said it was, it was on the ABC network or website there in, yeah, in Australia. Australian Broadcasting Corporation. Uh, and I thought, well, I've heard of the American Broadcasting Corporation. Never heard of the Australian one. Is it the same thing? Is it legit? I had to. I couldn't oh, yeah. believe it because I couldn't believe there'd be such a thing. But uh, tell us some about what's on there. I've well, seen some of this myself. Yeah, so here they have this tool. And how much of a pig are you? And so imagine there's three. Pigs. To measure your footprint. To measure so to your speak. footprint, yeah. basically. And, and they've got three pigs. They've got sort of an average pig, and then they've got um, this tiny pig, and then they've got um, uh, what you should be, the 1.8 pig, let's call it. I, right. I think those are the three pigs. You're one of the three pigs, and you're asked 11 questions. Now, it's obvious which questions are the green answers and which questions are the evil, oh, you're a productive, consumptive-type person answers. Mm -hmm. And so I went through the whole thing. 
first I went through it answering honestly, and of course, at the very end, what happens? At each answer you give that's you know you're productive and consumptive, your pig gets bigger. Uh, if you answer in a way that you know you're less consumptive and you're less productive, well then your pig gets smaller. Now, of course, me being a regular Western individual, my pig turned into this huge, absolutely massive, fanged, brute, ugly, <laughs> spewing green goo out of his mouth. And when you click the button at the end of the eleventh question, you said, "Click here to find out how much of a pig uh, to find out how long you should live." No, pardon me. When you should die. Yeah, that was says. that was a, that was a spin. Find out when you should die, and yeah. I click the button, and it says you should die at age one point eight years. In other words, you are consuming so much uh, in one point eight years of your life, you would have consumed your entire share of the <laughs> globe's productivity. Never mind that I've been cr creating hey, my own. I, I did better well. than you. I got up to I think about four years or something like that. <laughs> but you know what I thought was really interesting What's that? was the way they measured. Um, the CO2 output. And on one of the examples I did, I clicked on, you know, how much I drive per year, et cetera, et cetera. And then it would give me a, a measurement of how much CO2 that produces. Then the next question is, did you pay for your own gas or did your employer pay for it, right? And if you say employer, I just clicked to see what would happen, all of a sudden the CO2 footprint goes right off the scale there, goes right up. I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. I just made the same drive with the same machine in the same distance, but if I pay for it myself, it's less of a footprint. If my employer pays for it, it's a footprint. And I'm thinking, well, what's the difference between those two options? If I pay for it myself, I'd have to take it out of my own salary, would have paid taxes on it, you know, yeah. and it wouldn't have been a benefit. But it just shows you how the target isn't even anything to do with the well, environment. It is money. Uh, not only that, I mean, uh, as, a, as a second test, what I did is I mm -hmm. went through, every, and you can do this. It's still online, I believe. The ABC, uh, I think it's called How Much of a Pig Are You or When Should You Die? Uh, Google it and you'll find it. But it, I answered every question the green way, right. except one. Okay. How much do you earn? And I put in my answer, which was a six-digit answer. And uh, that's the top bracket as far as they're concerned. And instantly, even though my pig had been getting smaller for every other question, I instantly turned into that big fang with right. the green goo. Right. And blah, blah. So just earning money, even though you're recycling well, and all this other stuff, makes you... The, the bad guy, the evil, the biggest, fattest pig who should die at age one point. Well, and you don't only die, by the way. We sure, we sure hear it in the, in, in the <laughs> rhetoric. But you don't just die on this. This is the thing. This is for kids. Yeah. You not only are told when you should die, which is horrific, you're telling a child that, but you explode <laughs> into this thing, uh, this pile of goo, uh, intestines, mm. blood, brains, eyeballs. And this is this is what the child sees when they say when they see a sign that says you should die at age 1.8 years. Unbelievable! You know, it's almost child abuse. We've got to take a quick break. Yeah. We'll come back right after this. And uh, boy, time's running real fast on this. Get into some of the politics of it. Some of the examples. We'll be right back after this. So the plastic is here. Our job is done. We can be phased out now. And I think that's really started already, don't you? I mean, to be fair, the planet probably sees us as a mild threat. Something to be dealt with, then I'm sure the planet will defend itself in, in, in the uh, manner of a large organism like a beehive or an ant colony can muster a defense. I'm sure the planet will think of something. What would you do if you were the planet trying to defend against this pesky, troublesome species? Let's see, what might... Hmm, viruses. Viruses might be good. They seem vulnerable to viruses. And uh, viruses are tricky, always mutating and forming new strains whenever a vaccine is developed. Perhaps... This first virus could be one that, that 
compromises the immune system of these creatures, perhaps a human immunodeficiency virus making them vulnerable to all sorts of other diseases and infections that might come along, and maybe it could be spread sexually, making them a little reluctant to engage in the act of reproduction. Well, that's a poetic note, and it's a start, and I can dream, can I? See, I don't worry about the little things, bees, trees, whales, snails. I think we're part of a greater wisdom than we will ever understand. A higher order. Call it what you want. Know what I call it? The big electron. The big electron. Whoa. 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 It doesn't punish. It doesn't, doesn't judge at all. It just is. And so are we. For a little while. Thanks for being here with me for a little while tonight. Thank you. Thank you very much. proposal is this. By the end of next year, America and other nations will set a long-term global goal for reducing greenhouse gases. To help develop this goal, the United States would convene a series of meetings of nations that produced most greenhouse gas emissions, including nations with rapidly growing economies like India and China. Although the Bush climate plan is far superior than the Kyoto Protocol, it still begs the question, if the probability that increasing carbon dioxide will result in potentially tremendous benefits for mankind and the environment, why pursue the reduction of carbon dioxide at all? Could it be because it establishes a huge international bureaucracy which is not accountable to the citizens of the United States and the world? That is very, very clear in these United Nations documents that they want to set up a regulatory structure that would affect every man, woman, and child on planet Earth and all of the control would be headquartered in the United Nations. And if we take the more recent United Nations documents, it's going to be called the Trusteeship Council in the restructure of the United Nations that's occurring right now. While these plans are being made for everyone else, those demanding that we make these sacrifices have no intention of making the same sacrifices themselves. Isn't that always the way with sacrifice? Oh, <laughs> Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you for only a few more minutes. Uh, Paul, you're making a comment there while George Carlin was, you know, I, I sort of felt that little tinge there, too, when he was talking about, uh, you know, that nature doesn't judge, and, and it's almost got a green sentiment to it, I noticed mm -hmm. you were commenting. Well, I mean, it, nature doesn't judge in any intelligent sense, but nature certainly has rules. And we either follow them or we die. Uh, nature to be commanded must be obeyed. And in that sense, uh, nature is the ultimate judge. But this idea that this is a big electron and that somehow anything we do to change it is, is, is bad, <laughs> um, right. or that we're even not incapable of changing any aspect of it or reconfiguring it, I think that's a little wrongheaded. And it's actually a green sentiment. But you know, you're getting into this—the um, yeah. mm -hmm. idea of the you know the, the politics and the, the economics. Right. And ultimately, you know. 
and never forget. I mean, that last clip you were, you were listening to, where China and India, well, they don't want to. They don't want to participate. They want to be productive. They want to create CO two, but they don't want to. But they want the U S. And, and Canada to, to cut their CO two. Well, you know, yeah, you so could assuming CO two is even a problem, which, right, which it is. But I mean, but 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 they want that redistribution redistribution of wealth that they believe was stolen in the past, and that is now o- earned or to be owed to these developing nations. It's the same old cult of zero, the same old cult of you got something without earning it because earning it's not possible, because competence isn't possible, because nobody's more competent than me. None of us are competent. We all must share. None of us are competent to independently succeed. And if you think you have, then you're just a sinner who needs to be dealt with. Uh, and when you look at these carbon taxes and carbon trading systems, that's exactly what they are. They're going to put a gun to the head of the productive and say, give me what you produced or what you think you produced. Uh, so Stephen Harper was right before he was prime minister. He was right before he was prime minister. <laughs> and I think he and George Bush are right now to say, you know what? If China and India don't want to get in, into this uh, this game, then we're not either. And I think they're right, not because it's right for everyone to do it, but because they know darn well that China and India will never do it. Because it's a redistribution scheme. It's shallow, and they know that if everyone had to do it, nobody would do it. It would <laughs> defeat the whole purpose, which is just something for nothing losers trying to <laughs> defeat all of their bad feelings about being incompetent losers. Now, you know, just to to emphasize, because here in London we have this meeting coming up on Tuesday, and uh, I'm sure we're going to be hearing from the Council of Canadians, who will now have an opportunity. losers. Yes. (laughs) Well, I happen to have in my hand right here, uh, from the London City Hall minutes, uh, the the petition that was sent in by the Council of Canadians under Corey Morningstar with her covering letter. And I highlighted so many of the comments that were in the petition that just speak to what really is concerning them. And interestingly, in her front cover page, I don't know if she'll stress this at the meeting on Tuesday, she points out that health and climate change are top priorities, but they talk about the drive through being a totally symbolic gesture. It's right. uh, symbolic of the movement. But listen to this in the covering letter. This is interesting. Uh, you know, we're supposed to be talking about the environment, but listen to what they're talking about. Profits before children or children before profits. Right. Convenience before children or children before convenience. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it's frightening where the, where the whole emphasis is. And, you, and I look through all the comments. drive throughs are not worth the convenience. Nobody needs drive throughs It's right. all versus need versus anything a little bit better. It's or convenience. all wasteful. Right. It doesn't bring you happiness. It's not necessary. You, you know, and they, they posit everything as against children. Where was that uh, that concern for children when they put up that absolutely disgusting, are you a pig, when should you die? They, they're, they're fine with terrorizing children, but well, they don't want you to buy them. Cause. Yeah, but don't buy those children <laughs> any bottled water, you know. Right. It, it, it's interesting, too, because I see that there is some resistance coming now to the whole green religion, and I see them already starting to take their foot off of that Yeah, they'll find the movement. next crisis. Well, I think the next one's going to be, uh, among others, um, health care. Because yeah. that's a, a, a p- tremendous place to go into. Water. Uh, water, you're going to see that. They're already uh, Maude Barlow's proclaiming herself the champion oh, of water, yes, which is just laughable. The, the globe with two-thirds of its surface covered with water is suddenly going to have a water crisis, a water shortage that can't be overcome with 
desalination plants or anything right. like that. Yeah. And what's interesting is even in the same comments justifying the ban on drive-throughs, now you'd think everyone here would have signed it for the same reason, namely something to do with the environment. I would say a lot of them are not about that. They're all about self-indulgence, selfishness, convenience, that kind of thing. Right. But the other thing you see a lot is unhealthy uh, lifestyle, obesity problem, people using terms like lard butts, you know, calling the people who go to... That's that right. hatred. It's, it's a hatred, complete... I, 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 hatred of the competent for being competent because they continually remind them of how incompetent they are. And, and listen to this comment here. Uh, drive throughs are not a good source for nutritional foods and cause a great deal of idling pollution. Two, two very big negatives in this already negative capitalistic society. Go. And there you go. It, yeah. It's just... Uh, the attack is on capitalism, on on happiness, uh, on the happiness. values, the um, industrial activity, productive activity, rational activity. They and it all. they themselves admit, via Cory Morningstar, that it's all symbolic. Absolutely. The whole drive-through thing is a symbolic thing. And here we are, we're wasting all our time on Cory Morningstar and uh, the Council of Canadians' symbolism. And we're electing uh, these people to office who have no value to offer, who don't believe values are possible, and who are there, therefore, to do nothing other than destroy the productive. And that's what Council's doing here in London. Well, I think, Paul, you've helped us uh, discover a bit about basically what all politics is run by. It's not just the green movement, and I think we're going to see green change its color soon to some other issue. But uh, that's where we'll have to leave it, folks. And uh, that's it for today, and I hope you'll join us again next week uh, when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, and think right. And thanks for being with us, Paul. We'll have you back again. Thank you. Take care. working on my tan. I don't tan well, all right? I went to a tanning salon. I was there for like an hour. I didn't fall asleep, but people were walking by going, boy, he looks good. And I realized I'm in a funeral home, all right? <laughs> so I get up. People are fainting and screaming, you know.